Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. The Houndsman XP podcast is fueled by Joy Dog Food. Joy Dog Food has a rich tradition of supporting the Houndsman of America. Founded in 1945, Joy is proud of its history and the relationship it has built with the American Houndsman. And in 76 years, there's never been a recall. Made with 100% American-made high-quality ingredients, Joy Dog Food has one of the highest calorie-dense formulas on the market. For 76 years, this made-in-America product has kept hunting dogs in the field day after day, season after season. And when we say made in America, Joy has a long track record of fighting for American freedoms by being on the front lines against the animal rights movement and their extremist tactics. Joy will fuel your hounds and fight for your freedoms, fueled by Joy. is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in here. The original podcast for the complete Houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Shoot up there! Yeah! 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 Good boy! Good boy, Ranger! Uniting houndsmen across the globe from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many days how many days a week can you spend out there? As much as I can to be honest with you. Anytime that I get I'm I'm out there. Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else, I'm gonna hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. <laughs> Welcome to the Houndsman XP Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Powell, and we've got a great show lined up for you. I've been chasing this guy for almost a year. He's a busy man. He's world-renowned in the wildlife world, wildlife conservation. He's a professional hunter. He's done all kinds of stuff in Africa. Mr. Ivan Carter joins us on the Houndsman XP Podcast to talk about his adventures, his experience, but most importantly, he has a deep affection for hounds and houndsmen. And the way he uses his platform is he promotes hunting and the importance of 
of hunters being on the landscape, hounds and management plans. He just got back from Utah where he worked with Corey Huntsman out there with the Utah Houndsman Association where they were doing a um, mountain lion study with Brigham Young University. We're going to talk about that a little bit, but we're just going to talk about, uh, you know, the importance of hounds and why they're so important to wildlife management. I learned a lot during this conversation, and I think you will too. It'll give us some talking points when we're talking to those policymakers and when we're facing the threat of taking our ability to be houndsmen, those freedoms. When people are trying to take our freedoms away, you need to know what to say. I couldn't think of a better person that can help us with that than Ivan Carter. You can find all his information on social media. I mean, the guy's a he's a giant in the outdoor industry and the world of wildlife conservation. Can't wait for you to hear this one. Make sure you're checking out our website at houndsmanxp.com. We have links to all of our past shows there. We've got all of our sponsors there. And I'll just tell you who our sponsors are. Uh, I'm not going to name them individually. I'm just going to tell you what they're about. They believe in what we do here. We're going to talk about the House bill that was uh, passed through the House and Senate in Utah. And that's what this podcast is all about. We want to be the voice for houndsmen. We want to make the rest of the outdoor industry aware of what's going on in our world and how we are the favorite target of the anti-hunting crowd. And, um, man, it's, it's important that you understand that all of the sponsors that are teamed up with us believe in the same mission, to preserve, protect, and promote this lifestyle. So I'm asking you, go to houndsmanxp.com when you're looking for your supplies and look through our sponsors. Those people will stand with you and they stand for you. The Houndsman XP website also has a shop. We've got a few items in there. You're going to find some custom leather work in that shop. You're going to find our leather patch caps that are posted there. And coming soon is a full line of Houndsman XP logo wear. And we really appreciate it when you guys rep our brand because your dollars go to promoting and and producing shows just like this with the biggest names in the industry, the people that are out there fighting every day. Speaking of committed people, you can also join us on Patreon through the website. So when you click the support tab, you can join a bunch of other houndsmen that have committed to this fight and supported this show. You're going to get a lot of cool benefits from that. You're going to get a Sportsman's Alliance membership when you join us at the $12 level. You're going to get discount codes deeper than what we promote on social media. And just a good deal when you join us on Patreon. So shag it on over there to houndsmanxp.com. Find out what we're up to. Get all the information you need to help us keep this lifestyle rolling we have got a great show the dog box is blowing up it's a box shaker it's time to get the tailgate down it's time to dump the box how's it man it's good how are you really really good thanks i'm sorry it took us 
so long to actually connect with each other. Busy people. <laughs> <laughs> you are definitely yeah. a busy guy. Yeah, a little bit too busy at times, I'm afraid. Right, right. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm honored to have you on the on the podcast, Ivan. I've followed your work for a long time, and um, it's just an honor to have a, a person on the worldwide stage that takes so much interest in hounds and houndsmen and the valuable work we can do for wildlife management. Well, absolutely. And, and yeah, a great pleasure to physically meet you face to face, so to speak. And um, yeah, I've always been a great proponent of, of what can be done with, with non-traditional solutions. So yeah, looking forward to having a chat. Yeah. So what do you, what do you mean by the non-traditional solutions? I think that'd be a good so place for us to jump off. Yeah, I think so too, Corey. You know, non-traditional solutions. I think in today's world, we are seeing so much use of technology. We're seeing, you know, conservation solutions springing out of very unlikely spots. And, you know, one of the things that we are definitely seeing and, and which is coming to the forefront is the true value of science and research. And, you know, then you start seeing things like, let, let's jump straight into it and talk about, the, you know, the place for hounds and research, you know, I think that that's a pretty new concept is utilizing hounds as a component of research. And, you know, I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize until you look closely is that in order to get good data from an animal, you've got to be able to follow that animal. You've got to be able to, to see that animal and observe that animal, which if you are researching plain zebra, for example, you can go out into the plains any single day and with a pair of binoculars or a spotting scope, you can observe behaviors. Um, the same thing can happen with any kind of, of wildlife that lives out in the open. As soon as you start getting to the secret of carnivores, and in, in other words, leopards or mountain lions or you know many of those species, you start to rely on technology to do the watching for you, whether it's a series of camera traps and, and you know, much late, you know, more recently, the, the much heavier use of telemetry collars, um, you know, right. whether it's a telemetry collar that is, is being utilized on a, on a hound, whether it's a satellite collar that's being utilized, you know, to, to gather movement data, whether it's collars that are going on to GSM networks, um, cell phone networks, and delivering the data that way, there's all of this technology advance in the use of collars. And particularly when you're talking about a secretive animal, you can get very, very, very valuable data when you start to put a tracking collar on that animal and can see what they're doing day and night, start to see their habits, start to see when they're moving, how they're moving, where they're moving, what their habitat uses. But step one of that, of course, is, you know, really when you look at it, um, <laughs> how do you get a call? I mean, how do you track an animal with a collar unless you can go to the first step, Chris, which is to catch that animal in the first place right. to put the collar on. <clears throat> and so that you start to look at the different, the different, you know, solutions for that. So, you know, I've seen leg hold <clears throat> traps used. I've seen cage traps used, you know, and certainly cage traps in the case of things like leopards, um, they really beat themselves up pretty bad in a cage trap. If you're not. Absolutely. I want to talk about watching all of them carefully. Yeah. Um, and For so, sure. you know, and so what that does is just by process of elimination, it leads us right to the hound solution where, you know, contrary to a lot of, a lot of popular belief, which we can dive into in a lot more detail, 
when a cat is being chased by hounds, absolutely, when it's on the ground, there's an element of stress and pressure on that cat. Mm-hmm. As soon as that cat gets out of the reach of the dogs and it's in the top of a tree, very often it'll go to sleep. It'll find a big branch and go to sleep. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's been chased by wolves in its life. It's been chased by other predators, certainly in an African, African scenario. So as soon as they get up a tree and they feel like they're out of harm's way, that it's a completely non-stress situation for that cat. The stress happens when the humans arrive, when a vet arrives, when you dart them and, and, and things like that, which again, we're going to get into that more deeply. But I think just to kick off the conversation from what I've seen and experienced firsthand recently and historically, step one of any science which is to determine movement statistics is to get a collar on the animal. And, you know, without hounds, that becomes a very, very difficult task that's left to chance. For sure. With hounds, it becomes a lot more selective and a lot more effective, you know. We might be experiencing a little bit of lag here, Ivan. We'll we'll deal with it how we can. Where where does the world find you today for our audience? Just tell us where you're at right now. So right now I'm in my home in South Africa. Yeah. Um we live about an hour off the east coast of South Africa and um an hour further west would take us into the mountains. So we live in a little town called Hilton and um yeah I'm right in my home I work from <laughs> home when I'm not in the field and um as you know I'm in the field about 200 days a year so I was going to ask you how many days home. in the yeah I was going to ask you that very question how many days in the field do you spend cuz you just pump out the content and and I'm always constantly seeing you know your your news feeds and different things on social media updating and and tracking that around so that's 200 days in the field a lot of people uh we've got a lot of houndsmen that spend that much time in the field here believe it or not uh it's rough sometimes we're spending the grocery money on on uh, hunting and hound dogs but uh yeah we we do spend a lot of time there and that's good to hear i i really wanted to talk i'm glad that you brought some of these topics up you might be the easiest guest i've ever interviewed for this show because you've already got your talking points (laughs) down and that's wonderful um but uh I think it would be well served for our audience to understand uh, a little bit about your background, tell our audience where you come from. And I don't want to do, I mean, you've got a well-established history. All you got to do is go on Google or YouTube or whatever, and you can get all of that. But for time's sake and for the convenience of our audience, maybe if you could just spend a couple minutes telling us where you got your start and how you ended up doing what you're doing now. No, absolutely, Chris. So, you know, I was very, very fortunate, grew up in a farming background in in the, the then Rhodesia, um, grew up actually in the middle of a, of a civil war. And then, um, you know, right out of school, I joined a wildlife orphanage. I'd always been very, very interested in all things to do with, you know, hunting and fishing and and being in the field and and just, you know, everything from, from watching birds to collecting birds' eggs to, you know, anything else. And, you know, that, that interest led to, led me to work at a wildlife orphanage, rehabilitating injured and sick wild animals, um, which in turn led me to, to guide, you know, non-hunting trips, you know, literally over time all over Africa, as well as hunting trips in many parts of Africa. And, um, you know, Chris, that, that kind of evolved for me to do, start doing some, some television shows, um, Mm -hmm. in the early days, an outdoor channel, um, you know, it, it, that evolved into a, 
a moment. I had a, I had a really big moment, Chris, when my kids were first born. I realized, you know, as as I as I started to really consider what that meant, I realized that there were landscapes that I had enjoyed wildlife and and pursued wildlife and and had these incredible experiences that were no longer viable wildlife landscapes. Mm-hmm. And I realized very few of us on the ground making a, a, a real difference. There's a lot of people that want to make a difference. There's a lot of people that try to make a difference. But I, I thought that one of the best ways to do that was to leverage my ability in front of the camera, um, my access to to many of these really good conservation stories. So, you know, my first step into proper, you know, putting my my big boy pants on in, <laughs> in TV, so to speak, was with Carter's War, which stood for Wild Animal Response, where um, I partnered with Jim Shockey and his son, Branlin, and we created the series for Outdoor Channel um, that was was an original series that has ended up going, doing the rounds on Discovery and and, right. and so on. In fact, right now, it's, it's playing on Discovery India. And what it was, was a really interesting concept where we took a problem, we took a solution, we looked at the problem on film over the course of a 44-minute episode, um, we would look at the problem from the perspective of the wildlife, the perspective of the conservationist, and the perspective of of the problem itself. You know, very mm-hmm. often that was people, or or very often it was poaching, or, or whatever it might be, and that was really really successful. And then someone said, "Well, why don't you you talk more about the the kind of impact that sustainable ethical hunting has on mm-hmm. on wildlife?" So we did a, a series called Heroes, um, which was kind of the unsung heroes of, of conservation, which in a lot of cases is viable and sustainable, you know, hunting methods, which, um, you know, in a lot of landscapes in Africa, they owe their their bottom line and their viability to a hunting model. And so, you know, we did that and that was very successful. Um, and that's kind of evolved into what we do today, which is um, a show on EarthX TV, um, which is called Defenders of the Wild, where we don't really just focus in hunting areas, but we focus on absolutely all and any conservation issues that are happening, what their solutions are, which is how I happened to to be with Corey Huntsman early this year, um, who's the chairman of the Utah, Utah Huntsman Association. Right. And um, we were doing a show about what Brigham University was doing with the mountain lions, what their research was showing, some of the the very vital information that's been gathered. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of from inception till today, um, what I've been up to. And um, my daughter's now got a show as well. Um, Hers is called Wild Wonders with Brooke. And again, I'm hoping to see that some explosive growth there because Chris, there aren't any kids on TV today educating other kids on what true conservation. And you know, obviously, it's a kids' show. It's a little bit more lighthearted than the 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 blood and gore and reality of the of of what goes on 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 some of our shows. But um, it, it is something that I believe very very important. So, yeah, we we spend a lot of time in front of and behind cameras these days. And um, every year, I'm going to slow down next year, and it never seems to work out for me. <laughs> <laughs> you brought up a lot of good good points there. I definitely want to spend some time during this uh, conversation and talk about Utah, the work you did there and, um, you know, the issues that they're facing currently in Utah. I think it's, it's very important before, before we get there, 
uh, one of the things we do with this podcast and one of the things that I have kind of targeted in my efforts with Houndsman XP is I, with 30 years in the wildlife profession, I saw houndsmen being either underrepresented, misrepresented, or the narrative had been had been stolen from them. And it was stolen by the people who want to stop hunting and they they made it their own. And and so I know that in the work that you've done, I've I know that you've come under scrutiny at times uh, uh, for the positions that you take. What have you found to be the most effective way to get the messages out there about the values of hunting, about why it's valuable in the, the uh, broad scale wildlife management? Uh, what have you found there, Ivan? And, and how have you been so effective in your career of getting that message out there? Because you're not only speaking to hunters, you're speaking to the non-hunting public as well. You know, Chris, I think first and foremost, I think we can all agree our community as the hunting community is very bad at telling their own story well. And utilizing TV to do so, showing the true perspective of what really happens on the front line. Um, But I think also, hopefully, what's the word for it? Hopefully, we can inspire more people who are on the front line and are in pursuit of wildlife to tell their story well. And I'm not saying tell their story. I'm saying tell their story well. Yes. So a picture of a bunch of hounds and a dead cat is telling the story badly. Uh, a very well thought out post with pictures of the landscape protected by Pittman Robertson money is telling our story well. Mm-hmm. And so it's often shocking to me. I'll often say to, to hunters, you know, do you know, you know, how much money Pittman Robertson funding puts on the front line of conservation every day? And they don't know that. And we should all know that. It, it's two and a half million dollars every mm-hmm. single day of the year. And, you know, that's at a minimum. You know, knowing those statistics, being ready to tell that story, I think is very important, Chris, because if we amplify it, you know, when you really start to look at numbers and you start looking at the tens of thousands of tags that are sold state to state across across America, in a lot of cases, hundreds of thousands of tags. That's hundreds of thousands of people that potentially could be telling a better story as they sit in the queue at the supermarket or as they interact with someone who might not like what they're doing. And so really when you look at it, um, the, the billions and billions of dollars, take Michigan alone, you know, Michigan alone, you know, at 20 bucks a tag, that that's eight million dollars of tag fees alone mm-hmm. that go right back into fish and game, and that that has to be that way. And so, if you eliminate hunting, you eliminate all of that money. Then you eliminate the purchase of firearms and ammunition, which is the Pittman Robertson tax, which a right. lot of people don't realize is actually the only tax in history where the people have gone to the American government to ask to be taxed. Exactly, um, tax the government's dictated. And so now you take that Pittman Robertson money, take that out of the mix because, you know, hunting goes, firearms purchase and ammunition goes, who is going to write the check? My question is, who will write the check for conservation? So people say, well, what do you mean the check? Well, conservation requires management. It requires research. It requires 
constant and consistent oversight just because across the planet there's eight billion of us on the planet today chris which means that you know wildlife is under wild areas are under more pressure than ever before so if you love the pursuit of wildlife and you want to see the pursuit of wildlife endure to your next generation so that your kids can enjoy training hounds following hounds you, you know chasing things the realities are we've got to get better at telling our story it's not about marching it's not about writing letters it's about simply being better at telling our story and if we're better at telling our story and we can flood social media with really good stories mm -hmm. and control our our own destiny through the good telling of of stories i i think there's real hope i really do and you know if you look at what's happened in utah just recently in the last week a lot of that is a result of not telling our story well there's all of this really, really good stuff going on, but nobody yes. knows about it. Right. And, and it takes something like this for us to suddenly start telling our stories. Why have we waited till there's a disaster before we tell our stories? We're always reactive. We, we're very good at being reactive. I just returned from Michigan. It's funny that you would bring that up. Uh, I just returned from Michigan for the Michigan Bear Hunters Association. And, and I was asked to give a presentation there about the very things we're talking about right now. And, and what you said is one of the things that I included, uh, you, we've got to be better at knowing the data to be able to tell our story. You know, do you know how, uh, rules processes differ from legislative, uh, actions? Do you know where the funding comes from? Do you know how much funding we provide? Do you know how much money the anti-hunting organizations are, are bringing in, to, to use that against us in the fight. And I can tell you that the Michigan Bear Hunters Association, we sat in a convention uh, for their evening dinner, very high class. The president, Keith Schaefer, was running around in a camouflage sweatshirt all day and came back to dinner that night in a suit or a tie and a jacket, you know, to present and and give that, tell that story that that we're not going to allow other people to to uh, stereotype us or tell a story for us anymore, a room full of legislator and policymakers and, and all of that stuff. So it was a great honor to go up there and speak on all that stuff. And so another tie in that I have is Brad Luttrell and his crew at go wild. I don't know if you're familiar with that social media platform or not, but, um, go wild has, has set out to do that as well. And, and Brad, constantly is talking about we have to be better at telling our story and we're embracing that here we try to talk about you know as houndsmen we try to talk about the development stages of puppies to nutrition to caring for the hound to developing the hound to developing yourself as a hunter and and putting all of this stuff in there and not just showing on social media uh the success or the grip and grin if you will uh, because then people take that and they don't get the full story. So that is very interesting. No, I think that's true. But I also think that a, something that's very, very, very hard to argue is when you see hounds used in a, in a conservation solution. So, you know, every single leopard that I've ever put a collar on in my life has been treated by a hound. And so, you know, I'm not saying I've done hundreds and hundreds of them, but I've done a substantial amount of them and without the first component, which is is getting the leopard in sight, you mm -hmm. will never find that thing. And so 
you know, trapping the leopard is is not a good not a good way to do it. Um, you know, it's it's something that you know they beat themselves up. You know, it, it, no matter what, it, it's a it's a very it's a very highly strung animal that doesn't doesn't take kindly to that. And so, you know, as again, uh, one thing I really would like to to point out is that when a cat is being chased by a hound, yes, it's stressful. The moment that cat gets out of reach of the dogs and is now sitting in a tree, it's incredible when you watch them from a distance with a pair of binoculars, they'll literally get on a big branch and fall asleep. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't, that hound is no longer stressful. It's no longer threatening. They know that's not the first time they've been chased by something. Um, they know that they're out of reach and, and they feel completely safe. And so, so you know, I, to kind of, to kind of peel back the layers on this and take it down to the most basic level of what you're saying, uh, I want to make sure this is accurate, but what you're saying is they've been chased by packs of hyena. So they know when they go up the tree, they're safe and they're, they're reacting to the hound pursuit the same as they would any wild canine or any other per, any other predator on the landscape. No, exactly. And, and I think, Chris, when you start looking at it, in order for there to be an apex predator that is in viable numbers in the landscape, you've got to have the entire ecosystem has got to be intact. Your mm -hmm. prey base has got to be intact. Everybody else has got to be intact. Um, and so, you know, there's there's no doubt, certainly from an African scenario, that a leopard that gets chased up a tree, he's been chased by hyenas, he's been chased by wild dogs, he may even have right. been chased by lions at some point in his life. And his method of escape is to climb a tree. Mm -hmm. And he gets out of out of range and he he chills there until the threat is gone. <laughs> right. And it's no different when you chase him with hounds. And I think even if they haven't been chased, their instinct puts him out of reach. And the moment they realize they're out of reach, they feel completely safe. And the reason I say that, Chris, it's hard for people to understand, but I've got I've got footage of these cats asleep on a branch, you right. know. And to be honest, the most disturbing thing is when a human approaches. Mm -hmm. And that's when if they're gonna be a jumper, that's when they're gonna jump. Um, is when a human approaches. And so, you know, really what that tells you is that they're not scared of the dogs. They're scared of the people, but that's an inbuilt thing from many, mm -hmm. many animals in the world are, are scared of people um, because, you know, humans have been their, their core predator for, for, you know, as long as time began. And so, you know, I really think that from a conservation and a research perspective, they are an incredible tool when it comes to the capture of a cat in order to collar it. And so, you know, what I always say and what we spoke about a lot, you know, around many dinnertime conversations when I was last in Utah is there's three distinct layers to great research. Number one is catch the cat. Mm -hmm. Without that, nothing else can happen. So once that cat is caught, you've got a whole nother team of vets and scientists and biologists that will physically collar the cat They'll take all kinds of measurements, biopsy samples, blood samples, and they'll do a huge amount of research on those samples, which leads, comes back to, you know, DNA profiling and health profiling and disease profiling and all of these different things that can be today gathered from a hair sample or a skin sample or a mm -hmm. blood sample. You've then got the data that is going to be gathered by this collar that is somewhat automated. That data is just going to tick in there. But all of a sudden, you've got you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of data points, you now need your next level of research, which is somebody sitting behind a computer who may never have seen the cat. 
and they're going to analyze that data and they're going to look that data over and say, okay, here is the habitat preference of this animal. Here is the prey, prey preference of this animal. Here is where their kill sites are. And you know, a lot of the time, the kill sites, for example, you'll get this, this cluster of data points, which will tell you that a mountain lion has been living in an area for a certain amount of time. And there's right. only one thing that's going to keep it there is that that's a kill site. Yep. And so as soon as the snow is gone, you can go and have a look. And here we go. Here is a bone from a, from a mule deer. They can then take that bone back to the lab. They can analyze the fat content of the marrow inside that bone and tell you, was the deer, uh, you know, in good shape? Was it in bad shape? Was it mature? Was it immature? Was it a buck? Was it a doe? And so all of a sudden, just because of that, that collar, each kill site starts to be able to be to be monitored. You can monitor the scat from the cat mm -hmm. and see all of the kills that are little things like the squirrels and the rabbits. And so in modern times, Chris, when well utilized, we can find out more about an animal than ever before in history. And the more we know about an animal, the more we understand about an animal, the better and more most proficient the conservation action plan can become around that animal. And so really when you start looking at it, how do you conserve an organism that you don't understand? You can't. Right. So the more you learn, the better your conservation action can become. And the better your conservation action becomes, the brighter the future is for that animal. But if you can't catch it in the first place, because you're not allowed to use hounds or the solution that you've got for catching it is not allowed, how are you going to get all of this valuable data, which in, in turn leads to the, the conservation and the thriving of whatever particular organism it is that you're you are looking at? And so, you know, Chris, I think people underestimate it. They think it's this really simple thing. But as I've just said, you know, learning about these animals is one of the most exciting things in modern times that right. you could possibly do. And looking at there's there's one group of people that puts their hands on more animals than anyone else and that's hunters and so take the vast amount of data that can be gathered just from animals going through a taxidermy shop the vast mm -hmm. amount of data that can be gathered just from watching where hounds where their collar data shows you that the cats have run right where you found the track where you end up treating the cat what happened between those two points that's important mm -hmm. data, you know? And so as you start to look at it, you say, okay, well, who else can gather that data? There's no one on the planet that could gather that much data. That's exactly right. Uh, you, you brought something up there that I think is a key component that we oftentimes miss. Uh, you talked about visiting these kill sites and taking the bones of a, of a mule deer back to the lab and then measuring all the different data points that you can get there. So that data doesn't just die in the lab mule deer biologists are looking that at that as well so it's all interlinked you know what what a uh, impact does this mountain lion in this area have on you know the rodent population one of our guys on this team is a is a rodent biologist so he he definitely looks at all of those data points and that is where we as houndsmen need to help develop we need to look at that and develop our narrative Okay, you take us off the landscape. Who's going? Who's going to catch the cat? That's the first question. If you take houndsmen out, out if you if you outlaw this and you say we can't do it anymore, uh, this is a skill set that is developed over 
multiple years and years and years to be effective and be able to do it every time. And if, if you take hunting out of the management plan with hounds, where are you going to find those people to do it? That's always my first talking point about it. But then you look at the data that can be collected that is good for other wildlife species besides what we're chasing. That's profound. No, absolutely. And I, I think one of the things that I always bring to light, Chris, is you can't have a cat if you don't have a viable habitat for that cat. Mm -hmm. And so what is a viable habitat? A viable habitat is a landscape that's got a fully balanced ecosystem where all the, the ecology is intact. So right from the ground level, is there the right vegetation to support the smaller animals? which support the bigger animals, which support the predators. And mm -hmm. everything, when you start to look at it, has got to work very closely and very well together. And so really, as I look at it, it's very alarming when people who've got access to such important data are not using that data to make their decisions. And so I, you could say to me, well, Ivan, you know, what is the importance of a porcupine in the landscape? We should kill them all. Well... <laughs> If we really research it, we're going to find that that porcupine has got a certain impact on certain trees and certain vegetation, which has an impact on an important prey species, which has an impact on the apex predator. And so really, when you start looking at it, not only are the re researchers co-joined, but the research is leading to a very complex knowledge of just how this web coexists. And you can't have one thing without the other. Right. And so... Because we want to pursue cats with hounds, which is how we've got to say it. We can't pretend it's for any other reason. We want to have hounds in the landscape forever. We want to have cats in the landscape to chase forever. Right. And in order for that to happen, there's got to be quotas. There's got to be sustainable ethical accountability. There's got to be a healthy ecosystem. And for all of that to happen, there's got to be good research. So how do you do good research? If you don't start with a hound in the beginning. So it's this kind of <laughs> concentric circles where we can go round and round and round and look at this from many different ways. But really what it comes down to is it is it's just one of those things that the antis hate it, but without us, there is no research because you don't have a way of putting the collar on the cat. You see me smiling in this video because it's like, I found the guy. I found the guy that can help us lay this out. <laughs> and explain it in a way and show the importance of it. And I love it. And, you know, you talked about, um, you made a point there a minute ago about um, keeping hounds on the landscape and, and how we make policies. And you talked about quotas and, and different things. And I think that's a really good segue into you. You recently were, spent time in Utah with the Utah Houndsman Association and assisted them in in doing some of this research and I want to talk about what that looked like for you and what the current issue is there with Utah now. The Houndsman XP podcast network is powered by Cajun lights. All of your lighting needs for hunting can be taken care of at Cajun lights. They have three models of cap lights. I'm going to run through them real quick. You've got the Rogaroo, which is their high end light. If you're a competition hunter, and you got to find that coon up in a tree, and it's all riding on finding that coon. You'll want the rogaroo on your head. 
Next is the Bayou. That's a pretty standard light, but it's got packed with features. It's got multiple colors. It's got walking lights. It's got the red, the green, the amber. It's all built in right into that light. And then you have one of my personal favorites, the Micro Gator. The Micro Gator is an ultra lightweight cap light. It's got all the features of a white light, red, green, and amber. I've used this light for everything from finding bear tracks early in the morning to coon hunting at night to working on plumbing in the house, changing tires on the side of the road. My truck doesn't leave the driveway without a Cajun light in it. And that light is the Micro Gator. Every Cajun light is durable, made from the highest quality components, and it is backed by Cajun's top-rated customer service. Check out Cajun Lights. You can go to our website at houndsmanxp.com. Go to our sponsors page. Hit that link. It'll take you right to Cajun Lights. Check them out. They got a lot of stuff to offer over at Cajun Lights. So again, Chris, those are some really deep issues. So one of the things that I'm very, very fortunate to get to do is arrive on site with a very small crew of just two camera guys and get to be part of a solution for a given number of days as we mm -hmm. make an episode that that really legitimizes what's going on, that we have enough time on the ground. I mean, we spent some time at Brigham University. We spent some time you know, chasing hounds. We spent some time walking and looking for tracks. We spent a huge amount of windshield time with, with Corey Huntsman and, and, and with many of the guys that, that he surrounds himself with, we, we spend time with him. We spend time with the biologists. So by the time we put an episode together, we really know what's going on, whether it is lemurs in Madagascar, whether it's, you know, eagles in Africa, whether it's, it's mountain lions in Utah. And so what I saw there was this great disparity, the disparity between the public image of a mountain lion and the reality of that. So you talk to the little old lady and she may say, oh, I love them. No one must touch them. Equally, she may say, oh, they eat the mule deer fawns. We should kill them all. <laughs> but both of those statements are not based on any science whatsoever. They're based on an emotional reaction depending on how she looks at the species. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, in today's world, Chris, with everybody having a voice on social media, even the people who know nothing have a voice. And they shouldn't have a voice. The only people who should have a voice, to be honest, are the biologists. Not the, not the houndsman, not, the, not the, the hunter, but the biologist whose job is to find out as much as they can about that animal and then dictate the management of that animal through good science and biology and working ecology, not just through an emotional connection to a beautiful animal that's an apex predator or an emotional connection to a, a mule deer fawn that may have eaten out of your bird bath, uh, out of your bird feeder. And so you, you, you feel sorry for it because a mountain lion ate it. And so what I saw firsthand was this group of, I hate to say it, but actually fairly private individuals, really, really, really tough. Some of the toughest people I've ever been around. You climb up and down those mountains all day from four o'clock in the morning, looking for tracks and chasing hounds. That, that's a tough right. guy, way tougher than I'd ever be. Then the biologists that will come in there with backpacks full of measuring and weighing equipment and taking samples and, and doing all of this, you know, in these frigid temperatures with, with snow up to your waist, running up and down these mountains. And, and the thing that struck me is that from the houndsman perspective, they're all volunteers. No one's paid to do it. 
They do it for the joy of doing something meaningful for a species that they love. From the biologist's perspective, it's 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 a calling. It is no other way to say it. These are are you know the the ladies that we saw there. I mean, tough as nails, and just you know willing to do whatever it takes to get their collars on, to get their samples taken, to make sure the animal's safe, and 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 so on, and all for the welfare of the animal, and then in time the welfare of the species. And so it was this profound intrusion into this very cohesive, tight-knit team of, of, of incredibly tough individuals that were doing everything in their power to make sure that mountain lions are going to be on that mountain forever. And that sums it up. And right. so the sad thing is currently to see them out-politicked, and there's no other word to, to, to say that, and somebody slips a bill in there that takes away, you know, protection that's existed for 65 years or 68 years. You, you've got a protection of these animals that's just at the stroke of a pen being removed to the degree that a mountain lion, if this bill is passed, is going to have no better protection than a rabbit. Yeah. How in 2023 can politics override science to that degree? That, that's the most shocking thing to me. Take away the passion and take away the emotion and take away the tough people and the hours of work and the millions of dollars that have been spent on the project. How can politics not look at science when it comes to dictating wildlife policy? That That's the thing that's shocking to me, to be honest, Chris. Yeah, the, uh, the House bill is House Bill 469 that's going through utah right now it's actually passed the house and the senate it's on the governor's desk for either a sign a signature or a veto at this point um before we get there i, I want to spend some time and talk about that a little more in depth but some questions <clears throat> so you're spending time with these people in the field you're getting uh, a, a look and you're, you're you're being objective about this i mean you don't have a hound on the landscape you're not um, you're, you're there to tell the story. So for, did you ever see anybody that was handling a hound that, that said, you know, you got the impression from them that, man, I wish we could go ahead and kill that cat instead of collar it. You know, I'm trying to tell the story from the houndsman perspective and the value that they have. You talked about them being volunteers and we're talking about them using their time their resources in, in fuel, the, the wear and tear on their hounds, on their equipment. I mean, you, for a, for a week long, somebody, these guys are spending a couple thousand dollars a piece at least to, to be able to be a part of this study. Did you ever feel like they were disappointed that they were, they were doing the conservation work versus out there being hunters? You know, I, I really didn't because I think that, so, so I've been fortunate to be around houndsmen for many, many, many years. I've seen hounds used very effectively in anti-poaching scenarios. You know, I brought packs of hounds from Texas and, and put them into national parks in this part of the world and use them to, to chase people. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one of the things I'll tell you about houndsmen is it is absolutely never about the kill. It's all about the effective pursuit and, and the love of this kind of man and, and animal connection in pursuit of a common goal. And, and 
really it's it's never about killing the animal it, it's always about getting the animal in a tree and after that you know I, I would I would I would I mean when you see the guys that do it professionally for for people that have paid money to come and to come and hunt a cat um they don't really care about the killing side of it at all for them right. the excitement and the drive you know when you see somebody that's prepared to wake up at 3 30 in the morning in the dead of winter and walk canyons for six hours straight to look for a track mm-hmm. guys driven a lot more by by something a lot deeper than just pulling a trigger and yeah, so for sure you know i'm sure there are people out there chris there's all walks of people and and like every profession in the world there's people you and I want to hang out with and there's people you and I never want to be around and, and everything in between. And so I'm sure there are people that just thrive on the killing. And, and but I think there's, there's a whole lot more. Certainly everybody that I came across were people that thrive on the, 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 what's the word. It, it's, it's a very hard thing to explain, but the connection that they have with their particular hounds and this landscape and it's almost the the harder it it became, the more they loved it because it was this challenge to to control their hounds and and in the pursuit of the apex predator and and it takes you you know any pursuit which which again it's very hard to explain this to a, a non hunting individual but when a pursuit of a particular species takes you to a landscape that you would never otherwise see. That's no rational, deal. no rational person would ever go in that area for one thing, but I, I ex- absolutely understand what you're saying. And I think our audience, it resonates very well with them, Ivan, because, um, when you have, have, maybe you, you looked at the genetics of this dog and you chose this puppy and you raised it from birth and you gave it the care and the training and the nutrition and the time investment into this thing the first animal that they go out and they successfully tree or, or bring to bay. I don't know anybody that's like, Oh, I wish they would have caught a bigger one. You just celebrate, you celebrate the fact that you've been successful. You've partnered with this other living being, you know, and your hound to go out and, and be able to be successful. That is the measure of success. It's not about uh, you know, pulling the trigger, like you say, and most of us that have been doing it long enough realize that once you pull the trigger, then that's where the work really starts. And there's no more pursuit for the day. A lot of times, cause you're worried about, uh, bringing those animals out of the field and, and bringing them back to the truck. So great observation there. Um, uh, let's talk about house bill 469 a bit and and just go through and and lay out a 30,000 foot view of of what this thing is going to mean to Utah and the mountain lion population in Utah. So Chris, I think you know you can speak a lot more deeply to the actual politics of how something like that happens. Let me try and draw a picture of what the effects would be. So what that means is no quotas kill as many as you want, no seasons, kill them whenever you want, mm-hmm. no regard for kittens, adults, sub-adults, kill anything that you want. So basically they become vermin no different to a coyote. Right. And I spoke about a small percentage of guys that are go out there just to try and kill cats. And 
most rules in the world are designed around the people that are not rule keepers. And so there's a speed limit on a road. There's people that are always getting tickets and there's people who are never getting tickets. The kind of people that we pursue mountain lions for research with would never get a ticket. The kind of right. people that are built like this, that endangers a species when a bill like this is passed are the people that are always getting tickets. Mm-hmm. And it's that simple. And so you've got these guys who, you know, have don't have a, a wisp of ethics in them. They are, you know, bloodthirsty killers for, for want of a better way of putting it and run the, the very real risk of making this animal go extinct in that landscape because it's not getting, you know, institutional protection. And we're losing out on all those data points that you laid out so well for us in the research side of it. So, you know, it, when you when you eliminate the the quotas and the check-in process and you treat them like vermin, then you lose the ability to manage that species, but you're also losing the data on your mule deer, your habitat, Lions hunt in habitat-enriched areas because that's where the prey is. So now you you can find those areas and th- ask questions like, why is there prey here? What kind of plant species are here? What's the soil composition? I mean, it's so intricate and in everything that you can tie into this thing. Whereas if you just kick it off to the side and say, well, we're going to treat them like coyotes and vermin, then you're going to lose out on all that. But the other thing is I think um, we should talk about is why can't they be looked at in the same light as coyotes? Because coyotes are prolific. You can't, you cannot eliminate that species from an area. Do you have any, you have any thoughts on that or any talking points on that? You know, I think that what you've got to look at, is, there's a few things you've got to look at. You've got to look at the density of a particular animal. Mm-hmm. You've got to look at the viability of their breeding. You've got to look at the their prey species and their habitat preferences. And I think we can all agree that coyotes are far, far, far more numerous than mountain lions. Yes. And they can exist far better, even when persecuted, than a mountain lion. Exactly. So if we are looking at the character and personality of certain animals, some of them can withstand very heavy pressure and others simply can't. Mm-hmm. And mountain lions, one of those species that simply can't. And one of the dangers, Chris, and it's something we see in African landscapes all the time. If your population of a particular species goes below a certain threshold, it's not recoverable. It can't recover without the help of man. Right. As we stand today, there's a very healthy population of mountain lions in Utah. It wouldn't take very long under a bill like this for that to be reversed and for you to have a non-viable population where perhaps mm-hmm. you've got inadequate number of females in a particular landscape and the one or two that are left there are so heavily persecuted they can never get us a, a litter through you've got to have an undisturbed female be be kind of safe for a for a solid nine months for her to be able to bring a litter to the point of them being independent mm-hmm. and so unless she can be completely safe for nine months she's never going to rear a litter. And so with a bill like this, she's never going to be safe because you're going to have people pursuing that cat and where in today's world, they would leave her because she's got kittens or whatever. Under that bill, somebody's going to shoot her. And so 
really let, let's take it to its its most what's the word for it? most graphic example so all of a sudden you've got somebody without a wisp of ethics that's in you know one fall when there's a bunch of fawns around finds the the track of a of a female mm -hmm. with two cubs and pursues them his hounds kill the cubs on the on the pathway right he continues on and kills the mother himself you know at the end of the day you you haven't just killed a female cougar and two cubs you've killed all of the eggs mm -hmm. all of the future generations die with that female yeah and so really is that acceptable to the general public if you walked up to somebody in 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 walmart right now today that knows nothing about it and you say is that acceptable it would be a resounding no but the way that it's being couched is not that graphic and it's not that way and again as hunters we have to tell the right story in the right way and i hope that you know podcasts like this and and social media and and various posts are able to be shared so that you know step one to voting correctly is education and it doesn't matter whether you're voting for a president or whether you're voting for a bill you've got to you've got to be responsible enough if you're responsible enough to cast a vote be responsible enough to understand what you're voting for. Mm -hmm. And I think in this case, you know, what one has got to do is you've got kind of got to backfill the gap. And again, I come back to what I said earlier. It's astounding to me that a bill like this could be passed when there's easy access to fantastic science. Right. But the bill is passed without any regard of that science. And, and you know, millions of dollars have been spent gathering that science. And thousands of man hours have been not just on the side of the mountain but behind computers and you know university graduates and smart 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 people designing conservation models and it's been completely overlooked in in uh, for for some political agenda where some particular individual wants wants to see mountain lions disappear one of the things that i look at on this whole thing it it kind of defeats the narrative of the the unaware the ignorant person who feels like the houndsman is all about killing animals or you know that's the favorite tactic is you know hunters don't care we've got people who are highly invested in this mountain lion that are totally against this bill it, and one would think the person who you would ask at walmart would think that the hunters would be all for this oh they can go out and they can hunt anytime and and you know they're going to kill all the lions lions off the landscape but if you tell them that we are against this that's a valuable message and helps tell that story we've got the most invested in it we care about it deeply we don't want to see it mismanaged we don't want to see it abused and no if you're a person with no ethics we don't even want you out there so that's a that's a such a great opportunity for us as houndsmen to be able to jump in this fight and and say we care more about this wildlife with our money our time our resources than any other group out there and it's important to us we're not willing no, to just kick it off to the side and let people have their way with it no i agree with you chris and i think that people need to realize that you know in today's modern world without protection nothing's got a hope you know, right. there are 350 million people in United States alone. And unless we protect our wild places and wildlife within those wild places, it's all going to go away. It really right. is. It, it, right. Within, I, I hate to say this, but 
you know, within within the body of of hunters, there are enough unethical individuals that will high five and whoop and holler and and chug a beer and out they'll go and try and kill as many as they can. Right, right, and that that's... is the reality. Those are the kind of people that this legislation up until now has protected the cats against. Right, right, for sure. Well, you brought up something while we were talking there, which is another point that I, I really want to speak on and what we, we're running out of some time here, but I want to spend a little bit of time on the wildlife college and the anti-poaching canine teams that you've done so much work, a lot of promotion and, and, you know, research and, and the work that you've done with these anti-poaching canine teams. I want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's a very interesting thing, Chris, and it's it's not as politically correct as people would like it to be. But, you know, it really came around where, you know, what we found was that a line tracking dog, i.e. a dog on a line, um, most of that dog's energy is being used pulling against its leash. Mm -hmm. um, and so at the end of five or six hours, the handler is exhausted and in much danger because you're pursuing an armed individual and right. the dog is blown. And so... We kind of looked at this and we said, well, you know, what if we were to run a pack of hounds free like you would chase a mountain lion? Um, and, you know, as we started to look at it, um, I spent a little bit of time in Texas with an individual by the name of Joe Brayman and, an, and, and, and spent a bit of time with him. And he's an avid bobcat hunter. Mm -hmm. And well, in his, principle, it's his, his brother, Dan, was just on the podcast on Friday. Oh, wow. So, so. Yeah. You know, you know that family and, mm -hmm. and their, their heritage and, you know, they're incredible houndsmen. And so I literally, you know, sustainability and taking taking pioneering steps carefully is very important. So step one, instead of just diving into this potential solution, I brought a game ranger from, from South Africa, someone who was in the middle of, of Kruger National Park, in the middle of what we call the rhino war where these rhinos were being poached for their horns. And, um, you know, it's a park there that's four and a half million acres, which is quite hard for a lot of people to comprehend. I mean, it's the size of a small state and, you know, th these people were coming in and spending multiple days in there and shooting rhinos. And so I brought him to Texas because I wanted him to see firsthand as somebody in the fight, you know, what, what these hounds could do that worked. He liked it. So the next thing we did is we took Joe Brayman to Africa and had him spend a month watching and looking and understanding what was really going on in Africa. And then Joe said, look, we can solve this. Let me get to work. So Joe went through hundreds and hundreds of hounds to look for specific individuals that he thought had the character and personality as puppies that would pursue humans and, um, yeah, we, we built a, a, a pack of man tracking dogs that that to this day free run and we deploy them five at a time from a helicopter. We follow them with a helicopter and um, yeah, they, they'll track for, uh, I mean, you're a houndsman, you know how far a mm -hmm. hound can go. And so, you know, they'll track these individuals for, for long, long distances. And there's been so many benefits. We've caught over 200 people that way. Um, no longer with the Two, game rangers. 200 people? You've had 200 apprehensions? You've had over, over 200 apprehensions. Wow. That's um, great. The game rangers are no longer in danger because the hounds are running without humans. And so no individual is going to get shot. Um, 
the the interventions have been a lot calmer because you know people are scared of dogs particularly fugitives are scared of dogs um and so you know at the end of the day it's become this incredibly viable solution that has completely disrupted the way that poachers poach absolutely they will come up with a different way and they will find ways around the hounds which we won't talk about publicly but the realities are it's worked incredibly well and so we're expanding that solution you know across to other parts of the world we've actually started breeding into the hounds um, about a quarter doberman blood um, to give them a little bit more aggression um, because as you and I both know, a hound is a very mild individual. Right. He doesn't look for a fight at all. And so if you're pursuing humans with hounds, you need a you need a bit of blood in there that's going to give them just a little bit more nip. Right. And um, yeah, so so you don't want too much. You don't want the individual to be injured um, because, you know, it's very easy to sit in your armchair and say, oh, no, well, poachers are all bad people. They all need to die. That That sounds great on paper. But in reality and politically, it's a very bad thing. So all you want is a tool that, that, that helps you with apprehensions and then allow the, the legal, viable, ethical court system to take over from there. And so, you know, what the hound is, is an independent, it's a deal closer, really. You know, a yeah. bunch of people with a bunch of techniques get to the point where they call the hounds. The hound comes, closes the deal, and the houndsman then hands over to law enforcement and, you know, it's out of his hands again, and he goes back to training his hounds. So an incredible solution, Chris, um, something that has really once again shown the true value of hounds when deployed correctly. And, you know, I think that one of the things we can all agree on is training any canine effectively is very, very difficult. Right. Training hound effectively is very difficult. And there's no solution that can happen without a huge amount of learning by doing, but with the right people that are taking heed of the, the techniques, the tactics, and the procedures, what they mm -hmm. would call in the military, TTPs, and learning with every deployment. And so you get to know in certain weather conditions, the hounds are going to run in a certain way. In, in adverse conditions, they're going to need some help over the hard ground. They, you know, they, they, you know, the the milder mannered ones need to be paired up with the, the more aggressive ones because then they're going to slow down the aggressive ones and the aggressive ones are going to speed them up. And, right. you know, right. there's a hundred things you can learn. You could be a houndsman for a hundred years. You're still only going to know 20% of your dog. Um, you know, we, we learn something every day we get out there with the hounds. And, and I think that, you know, that's what makes houndsmen so different is they out there with this very special bond with, with an animal and trying to learn how to communicate better and be better at a common goal. And, and, and that's what makes it such a unique, such a unique solution, both for hunting and for research, anti-poaching, and the many, many other ways that, that hounds are deployed, you know. So so in the United States, I was a canine handler. Heath Hyatt, who does our Wednesday show, is a master trainer of police canines. Is there so we're familiar with working dogs and certifications that they need to be able to meet in order to be deployed and, and things like that. Is there a program, a similar program in place for these canine units in Africa? Yes. And, and the reason for that, Chris, is because of clever lawyers, because yes. they, you, the first thing guys do is we'll drop their bags and then you carry on tracking them and you find these guys. Mm -hmm. If you don't have an accredited hound and you don't have a GPS mark and track of where that hound ran, 
a clever lawyer will say, well, those guys happen to be walking through and those bags don't belong to them. Right. And so if your hound is accredited, <laughs> you can say, well, here is the track. Here is where the bags were found. Here is what the hound behavior was. Here is where the people were found. So therefore, these people dropped the bag on their way and it's an accredited hound that followed that track and connected the two. It's right. not an unrelated incident. And so, yes, those accreditations are important, especially when it gets into court. Um, but, but you know, again, I think that the effective deployment of, of any canine, you know, there's a lot of misconception. Everybody thinks in, in Africa that Belgian Malinois is the solvable. Now, Belgian Malinois, <laughs> I, I jokingly call it, I have huge respect for it, which I want to make that clear before I make right. this next statement. But they somewhat circus dogs. They can they can learn a hundred commands and do amazing things. Yeah, they're amazing. And they're an incredible short distance attack dog mm -hmm. that will do amazing stuff. A hound is like a thug. You put them in a group of five, they're gonna come, they're not gonna stay and sit and roll over and fetch a ball and do all of that. They they are they're an incredible tool. Their noses are 10 times as good as a Malinois nose, but don't ask them to do tricks. Right. And so if you understand the difference and you deploy them within their capabilities, both of them are incredibly effective tools for law enforcement, for science, for research, and a thousand other things. Um, but you've got to understand the capability of the breed that you're dealing with, understand the different levels of training and what the outcomes can be, mm -hmm. and then understand that You've got to deploy your hound or your Malinois or whatever. If you deploy your canine where the, the odds are stacked in their favor, they will always succeed. It's only the humans that mess it up. Mm -hmm. But if you deploy too early or the track's too old or the wind is too wrong or the, the, the conditions are unfavorable, that hound, you're setting them up to fail. You're not setting them up to succeed. So the human element has also got to be very good. There's a valuable lesson in there just for hunters. It's very much the same when you locate a bear track or a lion track, you know, setting them up for success it, when the odds are in their favor, you're setting them up for success. So are you deploying these anti-poaching canines? Do you have a, uh, you've got one specific use with the hounds for the tracking, you know, that's part of it. Are you also incorporating the Malinois for the apprehension type work? Is there, is it a combination or are you just using hounds only? So yes and no. So a lot depends on the particular scenario. So actually what normally happens, you locate a track and a lion tracker goes out there, usually with a bloodhound, a cold-nosed dog that can track a, a very old track, but he's slow and he's he's on a leash mm -hmm. and he gets to the point where you believe you find a sleeping spot, you find a place where they've peed or, or whatever, where you believe we, we try not to deploy on a track older than four hours. So you believe that you're on a track that's four hours old, that then the, the free running pack hounds come in. At the point that they are deployed, you try and have an uncontaminated track that no one's walked on. You deploy them and then you get in a helicopter and you follow them from the air. And in a perfect scenario, you have a small fixed wing flying figure of eights, an estimated correct distance ahead of the direction of the hounds because yeah. it's very hard to run away with, with someone flying over you that doesn't spot you. Right. And so basically what the fixed wing is, is to hold the people still while the hounds catch up. And so very seldom is there need for a Malinois because the hounds catch up. And you can imagine, I don't care who you are, when when five baying hounds come out of the brush at you at 40 miles an hour, whatever it is, 20 miles an hour, 
to kilometers. They go at 40 kilometers an hour. So, you know, if they're coming out of the brush at 30 miles an hour, five of them, and you're already a little bit frightened of, of dogs, and you've got a helicopter hovering over your head, you don't need a melanoma at that point. You, you run into the <laughs> helicopter. <not> the <laughs> that's so interesting, because that's one of the things uh, I saw here in law enforcement is without containment, it's as much a psychological game to catch a person as it is the physical part of actually catching them. You know, psychology is so important. And, and I was envisioning, like we used to talk about, you know, setting up perimeters. If you can make a person, a right-handed person, make enough left, tur left turns, psychologically, they feel defeated. And so they'll go to ground and they'll stay there and you have a better chance of finding that person. Out there where you're at, I can just imagine you hear the hounds behind you, the aircraft is overhead, and sooner or later, people are just like, this is of no use. I am not going anywhere. I'm done expending my energy, and I'm not going to get chewed up by hounds, so I'm going to climb this tree and wait for the helicopter. I'm more than happy to take a ride. Let's do it. That, that's exactly right. And and so, again, it makes it makes the life of a game ranger that much safer. Yeah. If you're tracking a guy on foot quietly and carefully with a dog on a line, no matter what, he feels a lot more confident in his position. Mm -hmm. You've got five dogs running out of the out of the woods at you at, at 30 miles an hour, all baying, and you're not a tree climber like a mountain lion. You you just you just wave at the helicopter with your hands up. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. That is really interesting. It are you are you at a point in the wildlife college there? Are they at the point where they're they're breeding their own stock of hounds, or are they still importing hounds? Is there a breeding program set up, and and what does that look like if they are? No, very much so. So um, they they did import the first 20, 20 animals. Um, a lot of that blood remains in the system. A lot of those animals were brought in as adults, and and they've run their course. I mean. A, a, a fully working hound does not have a long lifespan, um, you know, and so they're old ladies and men now, um, they, they're living in the lap of luxury, um, their bloodlines are still being used to breed, Great. Um, and they, they're doing it very successfully, and, and I think that the time that it's taken with the learning by doing in, in training, the training has come a long, long, long way, mm -hmm. and, you know, there's nothing similar about the way they train today compared to that first you know, version one, which was, was several years ago. And, you know, the, the college is a learning by doing institution where there's a huge amount of after action reporting, even within the training. And so every day, the goal is to do it a little bit better, a little bit different. And, and so, you know, I think it will continue to be successful. It's a solution that's, that's going to end up all over Africa. And, you know, breeding a hound is easy. Breeding the right hound is hard. Mm -hmm. training the right hound is really, really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And so if you invest the right amount of time in your people that are behind the training, I think that's the greatest thing. That That's the most important thing for a houndsman to grasp. You can go to a, a houndsman's banquet and you can bid on the most expensive dog on auction. And unless you really know your way around a training, the best dog in the world is not going to do anything. If you are a really, really good trainer, you can take a mediocre hound and have him doing amazing things. And it all comes down to connection and patience and understanding that every single animal is an individual. And there's certain animals that are going to respond to a certain thing and others to a different thing. But, you know, you and I both know that, you know, if you've got a hound with a drive for food, 
that that's that's got stamina, you've got a winning dog, no matter where it right. came from. Yeah, for sure. You you've summed up about three and a half years of podcasts that we've been trying to do there in about uh, five minutes, right there, Ivan. <laughs> we we've had those same conversations. You know, having the pup, right pups in the right hands will increase your success by far. So, where can people find more information about the the program that's going on there at the Wildlife College? And, you know, just get, get more information about who you are, but with it, that and specifically this program going on at the wildlife college. So I think the very best way is, is on social media. Um, I'm fairly prolific on Instagram. I'm at Ivan.carter and you can just scroll through a bunch of stuff there. The wildlife college is mentioned frequently there um, with links to all of their stuff. Yeah. Um, They've also got a website that you'll be able to find through social media, but rather than overload everybody with a lot of different information, I think, as I say, the very best is, is just go onto my Instagram, scroll through a few pages, look at some of the hound stuff that's there and um, yeah, click on some of those some really cool stuff there. So yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, Ivan, I appreciate your time. Uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity. If you've got any final thoughts, if not, then I'll, I'll go ahead and wrap it up. Well, I appreciate the opportunity as well, Chris. And, you know, I just want to give a huge shout out to the, the houndsmen out there that do it right. And um, it's a rare breed of people that are that tough and that driven and that motivated. And as long as you got them in the forefront of conservation, there's a really, really bright future. So, yeah, I just want to shout out to those guys and, and just say thank you so much. And, you know, when I, I come across and, and make friends with people like Corey Huntsman, I mean, it, it's really an honor and a privilege to work with him and his crew out there. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure you know a lot of guys like that. And and yeah, just a huge shout out to them for their participation in conservation and 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 basically in the ethical pursuit of of you know wild things and wild places, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that was uh that was my message at in Michigan this past weekend was you know, is there any hope? Yeah, there is hope. As long as we do things the right way, we come at it strategically and uh so I really appreciate that message. Folks, it's Ms. Ivan Carter, and uh, you can find him at ivan.carter on Instagram and Ivan Carter on Facebook. Make sure that you're sharing this podcast with your friends. We've got to continue to develop this narrative. We're doing such great, valuable, and wonderful work. We're very thankful for people like Ivan that are helping us tell this story on a worldwide scale. I think that is so valuable that we we keep that in mind. And um, yeah, appreciate everybody listening to the Houndsman XP podcast. This is Fair Chase.